Welcome to the Government Huddle with Brian Chittister, a new podcast from Government Marketing University. My entire career has been dedicated to marketing in the government space. And in the beginning, I never cared about the why. I was completely focused on the how. It was all about the tactics, the analytics, the ROI, rinse and repeat. Then I decided I wanted to understand these programs and technologies the same way our customers do. It opened up a whole new world for me. And that is what this show is about, aligning the why with the how, taking a deep dive on current trends, making bold, educated predictions about the market, learning from expert guests, and discovering innovative concepts on how to respond to all of this. So join us as we talk about all things government marketers need to know about today, tomorrow, and beyond. Come on, let's huddle up. Special operations community is very good at acquiring the right talent and then screening and selecting it into our pipelines. But with that, we have a lot of strong-willed alpha dogs that you know come with uh, certain challenges as a leader. So with any organization, you've got to build those relationships with people. And one, when you build those relationships, you'll get that credibility as well. If you're a government chief trying to compete for top talent or a marketing and sales leader trying to build out a team of eight players, you don't want to miss today's episode. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister, and I'm excited for today's episode because we're going to be talking about human capital management, especially in government. And this is something I was very focused on when I oversaw government marketing at Monster Worldwide, and I think it's incredibly important. But it's very difficult for government to compete with top talent, not only just salary, but um, a number of other things that private sector has going for that government just sometimes can't compete with. But it's far from impossible. And our guest today is going to discuss that. I also think that marketing leaders that are looking to build teams, especially right now, should pay attention to this episode because there are a lot of takeaways that can help you assess and hire top talent. Joining the show is Mike Sorelli, a retired U.S. Navy SEAL officer and a graduate of the University of Texas McCombs Business School. And he's now the CEO of Echelon Front Overwatch, a company that specializes in the recruiting, training, and placement of U.S. Special Operations Force veterans. Mike's also the author of a new book called The Talent War, How Special Operations and Great Organizations Win on Talent, which is available for pre-order now on Amazon and drops this November. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. First of all, I wanted to start off today's episode by thanking you for your service. I know you spent years in not only the Marine Corps, but also in the Navy SEALs, and it, you've had to endure numerous sacrifices uh, along your career, as well as your family. Um, so thank you very much for your service. It means a lot. Thank you. Now, you and I are about the same age. I know you might have marinated a few more years than I have, but one moment in our generation's history that I think really sticks out um, among all of them is 9-11. Uh, take me back to that period of time and what comes into your head when I say September 11th, 2001? It, it, you know, a number of things. It was undoubtedly the day that changed everyone's life, um, especially those that served in government and, uh, and in the military. It was a stark realization that when you get comfortable, something will always come out of the, uh, you know, out of left field uh, that will test you. You know, it was a regular Tuesday. We were, we were going about our day-to-day -day business, you know, elevated terrorism alert, and all of a sudden, 3,000 American lives uh, were, were taken. And 
the thing that I think beyond knowing we were going to war, we were going to war and we knew that. What really, really strikes me is no matter the differences in this nation, and this is what I will always tell my kids when I'm, and even children when I'm in my 80s, is it's the one time in my lifetime that I saw our nation put our differences aside, unify as Americans, rally around those buildings, either, whether in person or, or watching through the television as we pulled every man, woman, and child out of that, that the rubble that we could. And uh, I actually, I smile when I think about it. And I think about the good, not the bad. Of course, we lost the 3,000 uh, lives and that, that tragic, that was just tragic. But I've never seen our nation come together like they did uh, during that time. I really like how you phrase that, taking a positive out of the negative. And as we look at the pandemic, have there been any positives that you have seen? Because it's obviously been a massive negative globally from a health standpoint, from an economic standpoint. But I think there have some there have been some positives. What have you seen in that regard? Uh, Absolutely. Again, you've seen the the nation rally um, around the first responders and the amazing amazing, uh, medical personnel that that have been working uh, tirelessly to uh, to treat uh, the, the 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 larger number of COVID uh, patients. Uh, same thing with you know small to mid-sized businesses. America has rallied around restaurant owners, understanding that the uh, the difficulties that, that that they're going in, and the fact that they don't have that much cash on hand, and trying to keep them alive as best as possible. However, uh, I'm a little um, little irritated that now it's being used for a political purpose. Um, you know, hey. There's no book solution to that type of crisis mm-hmm. and to the the administration, to the government that, that's currently, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're they're making the best decisions they can with information that is changing daily, if not hourly. And for people to use that for political purpose to say they would have done things different. Guess what? You're not in the arena. That's easy to say. That's easy to say. But when you're in the arena trying to make decisions based off incomplete information, it, it's a tough task. So, uh, I, you know, I, I give accolades to uh, those that are currently uh, serving in government and, and trying to deal with the crisis the best way they can. Yeah, that's really well put, Mike. I, I know you do a lot of work too with Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, the two authors of the New York Times bestseller, Extreme Ownership. And they're constantly talking about stepping into the arena, be willing to step into the arena and accept the challenge. One arena I know that the three of you shared is the Battle of Ramadi. A lot of the stories and lessons from their books came out of that battle because it was a pivotal one. But when I talk specifically to you, what lessons did you personally take away from from that arena? So coming out of the Battle of Ramadi was a little more difficult for me than I think for uh, for most. One, mine ended abruptly. It was supposed to be one of the last missions, but... uh, you know, Michael Monsoor jumped on a grenade three feet from me. Um, I was the, the officer in charge of that that rooftop, and uh, I didn't do, uh, didn't execute my duties. I didn't bring everyone home, and uh, my my youngest seal had to uh, to take action to lead at his level to uh, to save myself and another seal. So, um, you know, I don't, I didn't immediately realize what we had endured, and, and you know, my focus at the time was not. Um, how, how did I learn from, from those experiences? It, it was, it, it was the grieving process for me, but as I've, you know, maturated and gotten older, looking back, uh, again, finding the positive, 
I find myself very fortunate that I got to go through the Battle of Ramadi at a very young tenure in my military career because I went on to have nine more combat deployments after that. And so um, being exposed to that very early on, I think, uh, enabled me to be more successful on the battlefield and bring uh, more of my guys home. Um, but if there is one realization, if there's a bottom line up front of what we learned from the Battle of Ramadi, Ramadi was leadership is the most important thing in the world. Leadership is the most important uh, thing in the battle. Leadership is the most important thing in business. And leadership is the most important thing in government. And without that, everything else will fail. If you don't have that as a foundation, nothing else matters. Going to be pretty familiar probably to some of my listeners is Chris Kyle. He wrote the book American Sniper, which became uh, a motion picture. And he's somebody that I know you served with. And when he wrote the book, it was slightly controversial. It's just not something that was done by folks who served in the special operations community. But when he got asked why he wrote the book, he said that Oftentimes, it's the people that get the Medal of Honor that have their stories told. But there's so many of those that he served with that he felt like their sacrifices needed to be told. Um, their family sacrifices needed to be told. Um, and people should understand their names, understand what they did. I've heard you speak about a guy that, frankly, baffled you from, from the moment you met him at Bud's um, and then impressed you uh, in the teams serving with him. His name's Ryan Job. For those out there that haven't heard that name and his story, can you tell the listeners about him? Because I think there's an excellent lesson there. So Ryan's uh, wounding, he was wounded in the Battle of Ramadi, was, was depicted in, in American Sniper. Um, Ryan Job was from the Seattle, Washington area. Uh, he actually, I was in his buds class. And Ryan did not look like the prototypical bud student. In fact, a lot of us were shocked that he met the swim, run, push up, sit up, and pull up standards to get into the training because he carried on. Uh, let's say he carried around 20 more to 30 more pounds than he should have. So um, that's why I said he didn't fit the mold. Well, you got to understand for me, I would, I had just been uh, discharged as a sergeant in the USMC Marine Corps recon community where I was also a scout sniper. And then same day was uh, commissioned as an ensign. So I was very much still a you know rough neck sergeant with a rough uh, neck style of leadership. When I came in, uh, a lot of the students gravitated towards me because I was prior enlisted. Uh, they highly respected that. And um, you know I made a snap judgment on the way that Ryan looked. And you know what? I wasn't the only one. A lot of the students made the same decision. They didn't gravitate or like him because he 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 didn't look physically fit. Um, and the instructors felt the same way. Ryan ended up going through training. He received more attention, let's put it that way, more attention from the instructors than any other student in our class. And the instructors threw everything they could in terms of extra, we, we call it extra punishment uh, at Ryan within uh, legal means. And at the end of Hell Week, at the end of Hell Week, there was 30, roughly 35 out of the original 250. And as I looked down the line, a few people down was Ryan Job smiling. They threw everything that they, that they could in the book uh, at Ryan, and he just had no quit. And Ryan went on to check into SEAL Team 3, also with me. We ended up in the same task unit, and Ryan was a good SEAL. 
and he executed his uh, his duties. And it was during the Battle of Ramadi that I finally built up the courage to to walk up to Ryan and actually apologize for how I treated him in buds. And you know, he he chuckled and laughed and he said, "Dude, it's okay. That's that's the way everyone's treated all uh, treated me uh, all, all my life because of the way I look." Um, you know, the moral there is people love to think you know seals look a certain way investment bankers look a certain way or come from a certain school um and the fact is talent does not fit a mold talent is rich talent is poor it comes from you know silicon valley it comes from the the the, the uh inner city uh, of brooklyn it's black it's white he's hispanic it's asian it's female it's male it's lgbt it's 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 straight you know, you cannot tell just by looking at somebody who's going to make it through SEAL training and who's not. It doesn't work that way. The reason we push people so hard in special operations training, like you should push people during the hiring process, not physically, but you should try to put as much stress on them during the interview process. The reason we do that in special operations is because when you push somebody to their limits, that's when true character emerges. If they are interviewed in a safe, comfortable environment, then you're, you're, you're not going to see who they really are. And um, it, it's the, 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 the basis of special operations training, and that's what a lot of the business world gets wrong. Now, you can't put people through physical uh, pressure uh, during the interview process. Uh, I wouldn't advise it legally. <laughs> but you've got to find ways to add a stress test. Uh, in where you can to see how they react. And uh, a lot of companies are just not good at that. So that's a perfect segue. Let's shift focus a little bit and talk about the book. What made you want to write the book right now? I mean, it ended up being the perfect time for this book coming out, coming out of the pandemic where leadership, talent acquisition is top of mind. But what was the catalyst for putting this book together? So, you know, when you say that, you know, some listeners not, may not understand why, why you say the timing was great because COVID from a business perspective, because, you know, I, I work for Jocko in Lake Babin with Echelon Front, which is leadership consultant, uh, consulting. We have a lot of clients and a lot of clients reached out to us when COVID hit and, you know, they didn't know how to deal with the crisis, what we call a VUCA environment in the military, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. A lot of their people within their teams were not built for those environments and couldn't operate and hence became sort of, I don't want to say worthless to the organization, but weren't driving results. And it came to, you know, we, we finally said, it's like everyone's a genius during a bull market. When the economy is booming, everyone, all companies are growing. Uh, everyone thinks they're a genius, but it's during hard times that, again, you see that true character. Um, and a lot of people realize that they didn't hire for character. Uh, they hired for industry experience uh, when COVID hit. So I would love to say we timed it perfectly. Uh, we had started this book about uh, roughly a little over a year and a half ago. So uh, we could not have anticipated COVID hitting, but it, you know, COVID just totally reinforced what we talk about in the book is that you hire for attitude, you hire for mindset, you can teach the rest. And, and again, we're, we're not the first people to say this. We, we understand this. It's, it's the heart of what special operations uh, assessment and selection uh, revolves around. You know, you look at like Herb Kelleher, uh, the founder and CEO of Southwest. He said it years ago. In fact, decades ago, we hire for mindset. We hire for attitude. I can teach them the hard skills. And um, 
yeah, uh, you know, we, we'd rather COVID did not happen, but um, again, timely with the, uh, the release of the book and people looking at the workforce and wondering, how do we hire a workforce? How do we hire leader, leaders of character capable of operating in all environments? In my role right now with OpenText, I head up our global industry strategy for our public sector business unit. But before that, I, I ran public sector marketing for Monster uh, or Monster.com for those uh, who don't know. And we specialized obviously in talent acquisition, recruiting, et cetera. But one of the areas of focus, especially as we looked um, on the public sector side was supporting veteran transition. Um, what we found was oftentimes it was uh, two-sided. Veterans didn't understand how to translate their skill set that they took away from the military into the private sector world. And then companies looking to hire these veterans could, couldn't do the same either. They couldn't translate and understand how the skills that these veterans were bringing, which are incredible, how they really translated to what they were looking for um, from a hiring perspective. Now, obviously, uh, you made this transition. How did your experience impact the narrative in this book? When I started getting out of the military close to my 20 years, I, I was getting my full-time MBA from the University of Texas. And uh, I'm sitting in this MBA program. I'm setting myself up for success. And all I could think about is the, my boys. And I get phone calls from my guys like, hey, do I need to go get an MBA? Hey, this transition's really tough. And I, I sort of felt like I wasn't doing my part. So I stood something up called Vetted Foundation. Huffington Post hailed this thing as potentially revolutionizing the way that veterans exit the military. The idea behind it was not difficult. And um, we actually did a lot of good, but ultimately it was shut down because we could not get VA certification, uh, you know, veteran uh, benefits so that veterans could use their GI Bill to go through what we call the accelerated management uh, course, which we, it, you know, we basically created an MBA light, MBA light for, uh, for veterans. When that failed, I took it from nonprofit to for-profit and that's what EF Overwatch is now. And we, we've narrowed our focus and EF Overwatch is doing uh, extremely well. But, you know, to, to say that, you know, veterans are not getting hired, uh, I'm going to point fingers in both ways. I'm going to point fingers at the veterans. I'm going to point fingers at the hiring managers or, mm -hmm. or, or, or modern HR. If you can't understand the value a veteran brings to the table, it's a lack of imagination. It's a lack of doing research on your part to understand the military. I mean, that's basic civics because you should know what the U.S. military does and, and what you know the the, uh, the the basis of how we develop our people. We develop leaders. The U.S. military is the world's greatest leadership development platform without debate. And if you can't understand, uh, you know, things beyond just industry experience, you probably shouldn't be in the hiring position. Uh, anyways. But if you look at veterans and you say, hey, you know what I'm picking up from this person? They're disciplined. They're a team player. They're humble. And guess what? They're trainable. Okay. Hey, those are four things that we, that we can utilize. We can absolutely use them in this company. They've got the mindset. They've got the attitude. And, and yes, are you taking a chance, but you're taking a calculated uh, risk. Now for the veterans, you know, if you can't translate your skills, then you haven't done the, the preparation going into the, that interview. That's the bottom line. If you just go into an uh, interview without any preparation, I can I can assure you with 99% uh, assurance that the outcome is not going to work out in your favor. And so you should be thinking about stories, 
about how that translates to that company, to that function or role that you're interviewing for. Um, and, and also building connection with the hiring manager or the HR generalist on the other side of the table. Um, are there systemic challenges facing our veterans? Absolutely. Are there preconceived notions of what veterans are? Absolutely. I think another thing that the, uh, the general public does not understand is that this is the most educated military in the history of mankind, in the history of the world. And for-profit universities change that game. Yes, are a lot of veterans getting out with these bachelor's degrees from universities like Trident Military University or, or, or other not, you know, let's say uh, not uh, brand name universities. Yes, they are. But they're finishing these degrees while well, in combat. I, you know, I would take guys out on a raid at night and come back at, you know, we'd usually get back at 6 a.m. in the morning, exhausting. And guys would jump on the computer for three to four hours to knock out part of their degree. You talk about the amount of resilience and steadfast commitment and dedication and discipline it takes to do that. They're not going to campus, uh, you know, with, with uh, manicured lawns. And, and that's extremely difficult. And some of these, these, these uh, veterans are, are, are uh, sisters and brothers in arms go on to get master's degrees online as well. I mean, you tell me that that's not a individual that a company wants uh, within their walls. Mike, you discuss a concept in the book that revolves around hiring for character, training for skill, but this isn't the way that traditional HR professionals are accustomed to doing their hiring generally, especially within government. They have a list maybe given to them by hiring managers that usually encompasses experience or number of years in certain areas or certain degrees that they need to have. So because of that, I'm not really sure a lot of these professionals have the skill set to make these types of assessments. So how do you go about assessing a candidate's transformational readiness? Yeah, for, for someone within HR, again, the, the hiring manager or the, uh, the, the HR generalist uh, conducting the interviews, one, you need to be looking at behaviors. You need to be conducting behavioral interviews as part of a multivariate assessment uh, of those individuals. But, you know, you are always assessing for two things when it comes to making that transformation. Um, one, uh, leadership. Well, let me start with this. Leadership is infinitely more important than industry experience any day of the week. And they have skills that, quite frankly, you can't teach them. Your company is ill-equipped to teach them the soft skills that they've gained in the military. But as you're looking for that transformation or, let's say, ability to transform into the role, you're looking for, one, are they trainable? If they had a stellar reputation within the military, then they are tradable. They've, they've taken new role after new role. They've had to learn, uh, you know, the uh, the best practices for those roles to, to be successful in whatever role they, they held. Additionally, they're learning agility. Learning agility is a big one. And quite frankly, these veterans, especially the ones that served multiple years, have it in spades. And the reason I say that is they would go to Afghanistan one deployment, which is a very unique culture very unique terrain and on the deployment after that they would find themselves in iraq having to relearn a new culture quickly adapting and innovating in order to be victorious within that new environment and then all of a sudden they'd be in yemen or or or, or east africa on the following deployment so uh these are the i would say consummate uh examples of generalists at their best and the great thing people don't understand about generalists is generalists are more equipped in my view, and, and David Epstein wrote about this in the book Range, they're more equipped to deal with the problem sets that you throw at them. 
because they draw from such a wide experience base. We have over-specialized, completely over-specialized in today's uh, job market. Brian Decker, who we interviewed in the, uh, the book, he was lieutenant commander, I'm sorry, lieutenant colonel in, in the Green Berets. He was the commander of special forces assessment and selection and really revolutionized it. Um, he said it's not only good enough that you're an ear doctor these days, it's that you got to be a left ear doctor. And again, you've got to be very, you know, very careful about what you put in the job description about the number of years of experience and skills that are required to be successful in the job. You've got to put some analysis into that and be truthful with yourself uh, as the person writing that job description. Is this really a prerequisite to success uh, as you, uh, you start to screen uh, candidates? Is this something that's even possible in government, Mike? I mean, especially in today's environment where process transparency is scrutinized, I know it can become very difficult for these hiring managers, but you want to hire the best candidate, obviously. But to some degree, the human element has really been taken out of the hiring process in government. Yeah, there's there's interviews, but oftentimes it comes down to which candidate is better on paper and which candidate has more degrees. So what can government do to transform this process and really give them a leg up in the war for talent? Well, let's be honest, if the listeners, uh, if we could look in the mirror, none of us are surprised that government has created so much policy and regulations that they've tripped themselves up mm -hmm. uh, in this process. They, they've tied their own hands behind their, uh, their backs. Um, you know, my one, I came from government, federal government with the U.S. military. Um, and then my first job out of the, uh, the military was with the Texas state government. I was the executive director of veteran services for the Texas A&M system. So by nature, a, a, a state employee. Um, you've got to be very careful. Uh, and what the government is overly concerned about is compliance with the regulation that you, you, uh, um, you just stated. When you're hiring not to lose, you are definitely not hiring to win. And so basically government engages in what we call fear-based hiring. Hire the person that really creates the less fear in your mind. Uh, and, you know, I don't blame some, some of the, uh, the HR generalists and hiring managers in, in government for making bad decisions that, you know, uh, if they make decisions that, that may seem a little risky to their, 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 their bosses and they get slammed for it, then they're going to start making the safe pick. And when you make safe picks, guess what? You're creating a team that is just average. And average teams don't win. And that sort of really summarizes government hiring uh, at its best. I think that's a really good point, Mike. And I want to go back to the beginning of the book where there's a quote in there that really resonated with me and made me think. It goes, but one of the most important roles of a leader is often overlooked, the responsibility of building the team in the first place. The leader is responsible for training, equipping, and directing a team. But before any of that is possible, the leader must recruit, screen, and acquire the right people for the team. So how can CEOs and the heads of HR identify the best leader as they're looking to build their talent acquisition team? This is the person that has to not only understand talent, but also compliance, law, uh, strategy, so what are your recommendations here as you are trying to find the person who is going to build out the talent and the people within your ecosystem? Oh, yeah, that's that's simple. Take the very best player, the, the very best A player within your organization, and they probably usually have no HR experience whatsoever or talent acquisition experience whatsoever. Great. Take them, 
look at them and say, hey, I need you to build me a winning team. And because of that, this is why I'm going to put you in charge of talent acquisition for our government department. I need you to go out and find the best talent. And that's hard for a lot of leaders to do. Why? Because you just took your A player off the battlefield. And not many leaders will take their, their A players off the battlefield to take a role that has a long-term effect on the organization. We are, as humans, focused on short-term tactical win, not the long game. It's just we're not built for that. We're not designed for that. Look at, look, look at publicly held companies. One, they've got board of directors and shareholders down their necks. They, they fear a down quarter. They fear reporting that. So they make decisions for the quick win. And when you make quick decisions or uh, decisions for the quick win for your organization, you're going to lose in the long run. And so that long game is tough for a lot of those leaders taking uh, A players off the battlefield. Well, so even beyond talent acquisition, you also, from a leadership standpoint, are trying to cultivate the, ta the talent mindset. So in executive leadership development, how do they develop that talent mindset to help the organization culturally? <clears throat> this, really, this, this, this needs to come from the top down. People need to see their leaders say, hey, guess what? You guys are the most important thing to this, uh, this organization. You guys are the thing that makes this organization tick. You are the one, ones that make decisions that solve the problems. You are the ones that seize opportunity in the market space or the respective uh, government sectors. And you need to remind people that we are all, we are all recruiters for this organization. How you present yourself, how you conduct yourself uh, outside the walls of the organization speaks volumes to potential future candidates. Great companies do that. Look at the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps, no Marine ever refers to themselves as an ex-Marine. If they say anything, it's I'm a former Marine. Some you know, World War II vets to this day will just tell you they're a Marine. It, it's that positivity breeds positivity. It's that example that, that bleeds to the next generation. And that's why the Marine Corps never hits a uh, or misses a recruiting, uh, recruiting mark. You just don't see that in government. You don't see a whole lot of pride these days. You know, if you're with, if you're, if you're in federal and you're with the uh, state department, you should be proud to be a state department uh, employee for the, the, the mere fact of what you're doing, the impact that you're having around the world and on your country. Same with the FBI or, the, or Homeland Security or, or, or the Department of the Interior. You have to have pride. If you lack pride in what you do, then you're not going to become a talent magnet. If the organization as a whole lacks pride and purpose, how can you expect to convey that to somebody in the interview? You're just not interviewing people. People are also interviewing you. They're assessing you during the interview. Is this person a leader I can work for? Is this, a per is this person a leader I want to emulate? Does this person exude the belief in what they do? And if you don't, you, you're going to have a very tough uh, go at it. I think one of the biggest draws, and you just touched on it, is public service, especially with the shifting demographics of the workforce. As there's more millennials coming into government, uh, that's happening because there's more of a draw within that generation for public service is what we're seeing. But based on industry data, one of the primary reasons why government loses out on top talent is they can't compete with the same pay scale as private sector, especially in the more technical jobs like cybersecurity and uh, coding talent. But when you look at Navy SEALs or you look at folks that go into the military, these are some of the best of the best out there, and they're not going into it to make a lot of money. They're going into it for a higher calling. 
I I've also heard you speak to the fact that every SEAL is looking for the next great SEAL. They're always out there trying to look for talent, pitch that talent on joining them. So as, as we look at that kind of dynamic, what makes these teams so successful in competing for top talent? And what can government take away and learn from that? If the government is sitting there licking their chops saying, we, we, you know, there, there's, there's no talent out there for us, you're wrong. There's plenty of talent out there that can work for the, uh, the government. So the government is traditionally, and let's be honest, awful, awful about controlling their brand. In fact, there is none uh, externally to potential talent out there. Uh, you know, currently undergrads in, in college. When's, you know, we, we see Green Beret commercials, Army Special Forces, Army commercials, Marine commercials. We see Navy SEAL commercials. When's, when's the last time you saw a, a you know, Department of State commercial? Advertising with pride the people that are forward, engaging with other governments in those in those countries, securing democracy and freedom for, for people. I haven't seen it. There may be a promotional video, but that's not getting out there. It, you know, if, if anything, government recruiters should be hard, hitting the high schools harder. They should be hitting the colleges uh, harder. They should be sending their very best leaders who, th who don't think they have the time to go to a college fair in their suit, shake hands, tell people about what they do, and, and maybe educate them. Have you ever thought about a career in government? Let me tell you why it'll set you up for success in the future, whether you stay within government or go to the private sector. So Mike, as we start to wind down, I know you talk to a lot of veterans and you're always giving out some career advice to them and others. What career advice would you have for my listeners? I know right now the pandemic has hit some folks hard. Some people might be looking for a job. So as they're, as they're going through that, what advice would you have um, for them as they're navigating their careers? So number one is you got to own it. Nobody can own your career search for you or your career switch. You are solely responsible. Uh, two, your search will either be as tough or as easy as you make it. And what I say by that is the amount of preparation and planning that you put into it. If you make getting a job, your job, if you're up at five in the morning, you're getting your physical training in, and then you're starting by you know 637 with your search, you are hitting the job sites, you're being proactive, you're making calls, you're getting out there and networking, you're changing or adapting your resume as necessary in order to make sure that as many keywords fit the, uh, the function as possible, then you're going to have an easy go to it and you're going to be hired. Um, if you're not, you have no one else to blame but yourself. Um, really, those two things, if you own it, if you take control over your job search and you put the preparation and planning in, um, you're, 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 you're eventually going to do well. Yes, I'd always caution people to be patient. Sometimes you're trying to find the right organization. I will add one uh, last thing. It's not how much you know about the company or the department of the government that you're interviewing uh, for. It's not how much you know about them. It's how well you know yourself. And you'd be surprised how many people don't know themselves. They don't know their strengths. They don't know their uh, weaknesses. If you leave a job and you start to look for another job or you're, you're getting out of the military and you're starting your, uh, your, your, your career transition, the first step should always be know thyself. And if you don't, that's okay. Take the time for a personal inventory of where your strengths and your weaknesses are and be prepared to answer those. 
Uh, I just saw George Randall, who's the other co-author uh, of the book, um, lead an interview uh, with a gentleman who had 30 years of leadership experience in, in a certain sector, was interviewing for the same job in, in the, the same sector. And George asked him a simple question of, what are your top three attributes? And this gentleman could not give with assurance and confidence what his three top uh, attributes were. And it was a clear tell, you know, clear sort of tell sign that this guy doesn't have a grasp of what his leadership style is or who he is. And ultimately, he lost the opportunity because of it. Thanks again for your time today, Mike. Uh, congrats on the book again. Um, but before we let you go, I just want to give you one last chance. Any final thoughts you have for the audience? Uh, God bless America. Uh, find ways to uh, identify what unites us, what doesn't divide us. Um, uh, get out there and vote and then leave it at that. Whatever side wins, just we're going to get up that morning and we're going to go back to work as a nation. Uh, things will not fall apart regardless of, uh, of who takes the, uh, the house. Lastly, I'll say, man, government has a role. It has a role. It has a huge role. It determines the policy. It regulates the policy uh, for us Americans. And, and, you know, I know a lot of your, your listeners are government. Thank you for what you do. And it determines the outcome in this country. Don't, you know, don't, uh, don't, don't sway. Uh, maintain the, uh, the course. And uh, yeah, <clears throat> thank you for what you guys do. What a great conversation today. The book is The Talent War, How Special Operations and Great Organizations Win on Talent. You can head over to Amazon now and pre-order it. It's coming out early November or wherever online books are sold. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And while you're over at Amazon pre-ordering Mike's book, you can find us on Amazon Music as well. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ChittisterAB. Don't forget to go vote, guys. Bye for now.